And so, you know, it was, I began to get more specific about going for shows that I responded to. And I think the likelihood of you responding to something that is already creatively in your wheelhouse is probably pretty high. And so then you're showing up and it's like a perfect handshake of like what you want to do meets what the show is looking for you to do. Um, and over the, I guess that was 2020, I started doing more shows that were like, almost like I, I applied to a job that didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would really strongly recommend folks like do that because a lot of times like, you know, people work so long on a show that, and they care so much about a show. It's great to have, have a rep say, Hey, Orin loves your show and would love to direct an episode. And like, they'll be like, okay, let me hear this. Motherfucker tell me why they love my shit. Like who's everybody's got 10 minutes for that. Right. Let's shoot with Pete Chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody. That's quite simply ever watched anything. Pete converses with a wide range of fellow directors, writers, actors, showrunners, producers, executives, and more on a journey to determine just what makes a good director and why we'll always need stories. The Director is Pete Chapman's digital studio, built on the pillars of craftsmanship that ensure a unique vision. I'm talking about story, innovation, perspective. Learn more about the director, and better yet, get your official director's chair wear by visiting www.drctr.video. That's drctr.video. All right, all right, all right, all right. What's up, people? Um, Welcome to episode 39 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. And the only reason I know that is because I had to look it up because the last episode aired over a month ago uh, on, that's me clicking on episode 38 with Kaylee Kuoko. Uh, That dropped on May 5th. Today is June 28th. So we're back. It's a little bit of a a special crossover episode. Um, I sat down with my friends over at uh, Just Shoot It, Matt and Oren, and they were kind enough to let me repurpose the pod that I did with them last week um, and air it for y'all. We had a really cool convo about, uh, you know, the flight attendant um, and also just about the career. Um, and what was the reason I'm sharing it is because um, it was a very director um, driven convo that I think, you know, I, I felt a lot of the questions that they asked were damn good questions and I figured let's just share it with y'all um in the interim uh while I focus on uh finishing up uh, a new show that um I'm starting uh I started yesterday called Unprisoned uh starring Carrie Washington and Delroy Lindo I am excited excited about directing this finale um and then once that is done uh we'll have a little bit of time um to hopefully get back and record uh some more original content and interviews for y'all. So in the meantime, I hope you enjoy episode 39 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman, which is me talking with my good friends over at Just Shoot It. Roll sound. Speed. The interview. Take one. We're back on with Pete Chapman. Thanks for coming back, Pete. Hey, I feel like, you know, 
it ain't often you get to come back to a great co- podcast a second time um, uh, and not have not have scandal attached to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you do have some explaining to do, though, Pete. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we're excited to have a, another director on. Someone with your accolades is great. But even more exciting is that you are also a podcast host. That's right. That's yes. right. It does maybe, make a difference. It is nice. Yeah, you know? maybe you should just interview us. But anyway, uh, Pete, we were saying before we started rolling, Pete, that you, uh, the last time we spoke, you know, things were going well for you. You had, you know, a ton of great credits. And then I just pulled up your INDB to just kind of refresh my memory. And I see a hell of a lot of television in 2019, 2020, and 2021. Like, yeah. a, like a lot of TV. I think and last time you were on here, you had done... The unicorn was kind of a recent thing. Obviously, we've done grownish, mixedish, blackish. Did you do blackish? Yeah, I had done blackish then too, for sure. Yeah, because I've, I've done six episodes of that show. Oh, why is it not on here on your IMDb? You just have to keep scrolling, Oren, because there's so much. Grey's Anatomy, The Unicorn, Mythiquest, All Rise, Blind Spotting, You, Love Life, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Blackish, Long Slow Exhale, The Flight Attendant, as well as your podcast, just yeah. to name a few. So we were asking, though, Pete, if there was any sort of... If you could uh, save some episodes for the rest of us. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pass them around. Uh, but, but if there was like any sort of moment, a pivotal moment that kind of launched you into the second act of your career, basically. Like going from like kind of like a, a few episodes here and there to basically like... Working nonstop. The most like, in-demand TV director. Like truly, I don't know how you have enough time in the year to do as many episodes as it looks like you've done in 2020. At the same time as producing a child. Yeah. <laughs> that, and that, that's been the, I was going to say the hardest part, but the most fulfilling part. Um, I, well, look, I'll, I'll say this in the beginning to kind of give a little runway to the answer. Like in the beginning, you're just kind of like, who's going to hire me? <laughs> You know, and I I think that one, I don't know how much of it was luck or strategy or whatever, but I was real fortunate to kind of fall into three different camps in the beginning. Mm-hmm. So like my, my very first episode that I ever booked was Blackish. Um, so then I'm in the, I'm in the Kenya Barris-ish world, ish universe. Mm-hmm. And um, I booked that like in April of what, 17 to, to shoot in November of 17. But then Gronish got greenlit. And because I was a, now an approved director, I got Gronish second, but directed it first because mm-hmm. it shot before. Mm-hmm. So like I did Gronish and then I, then I did Blackish and then I got brought back to Gronish. And so like when you get to, uh, <laughs> when you get to the whole like timeline of everything, you know, it, it turned out that I did six grownish and six blackish, right? So like that was like really from one family, twelve episodes of TV. I luckily was brought into that camp. And then the second camp was not in order, but just in my memories order right now, was the always sunny guys, right? Mm-hmm. And so like when I did and that worked. I'm going to, I like to kind of give context because I feel like for people listening, it's good to anecdotally hear like, you know, on that first episode of Grownish um, that I did, the guy shooting directly before me um, is now a friend, Todd Bierman. And so like we were just shooting the shit in the parking lot because the prepping director parks next to the shooting director and something happened with, um, the show Mythic Quest and they were looking for a director and he and Rob go back to high school 
Rob McElhaney. And he was like, oh, Rob, you should meet this guy, Pete. So I have this, you know, we mm -hmm. hit it off in the parking lot. I then have a meeting with Rob and I do an episode of Mythic Quest. And while we were shooting that episode and we were kind of navigating, you know, the challenges of production and I was kind of trying to be cool as a fan. Can I just stop you for a second? So when you meet with Rob, you hadn't done Always Sunny yet at this point. No, I hadn't. What do you guys talk about? Is he like, so what do you think is funny? Or like, well, and, and to clarify, is this literally just in the parking lot as well? Or you came in to sit down with him? <laughs> so I met Rob at, uh, at their office or an office. I don't know what mm -hmm. office it was. It was an office uh, in Santa Monica. Gotcha, um, gotcha. And I so a little more like, formal than just like, a, oh, hey, nice to meet you. Yeah. 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 But like, you know, I like I read the script for Mythic Quest. Uh, I was uh, you know, it's, what's really funny is like I had kind of watched Always Sunny, but never really gotten into it very deeply. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, I can't go meet this guy and like not watch. I got a couple of friends who are like my TV gurus. And I'm like, yo, where should I where should I begin? What should I watch? And so I probably watched like 20 episodes over the weekend. And I was sure. like, I was like, which is, is like five percent of that show. <laughs> I know. It's been on forever. <laughs> and I started. I started with um, the gang turns black or whatever. With, with, I think that was the. I think that was the title of it. Um, and I was like, okay, this is some wild shit, but it was smart. And so I was like, okay, Wait, what I, happens I, in that? I've never. I haven't really seen the show. What happens in that episode? In that episode. Um, Okay. It's so crazy. It's one of, it's like when you talk about Seinfeld or curve, you like, you sound ridiculous when you recount it, <laughs> but there's like a, there's a, a black homeless guy that's kind of, that is in their apartment and they're watching the whiz. Um, and the gang was not familiar with this film. Um, and lightning strikes or something happens and then they wake up or they come out of this lightning strike and they are black and they recognize it, of course, when they look in the mirror. And so it's a musical. And they're and played by it, other actors. They're played by other actors. And it goes through, you know, like they can't find their keys, you know, is one, uh, is one scenario. And they're trying to break into um, Dennis's Range Rover. And, of course, the cops pull up. And it goes through all of these different scenarios. And it ends with Charlie, like, who's a kid, getting shot by a cop. And um, it's, it, I mean, it's walking so many fucking lines, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? While also being thoughtful about it. And I was like, I ain't even mad at this. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I'm watching it like this is, this is really smart. So. And those actors that, are doing impressions of like Charlie and Rob. And right. The rest of the cast. Right. I mean, it, it, it's, it, <laughs> it was, it was, dare I say it was like, it was a beautiful episode. And so um, I was like, okay, I, I really like what these guys are doing and have been doing. And so we have the meeting and we just kind of talk about, um, you really just talk about who you are and your sensibility and where you're from. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're strategic and smart, you know, uh, you make sure to show how who you are kind of connects to the themes that they like to explore in, in, in whatever show that you're meeting about. Do you talk at all about like, oh, I love wide shots <laughs> or like, like any, anything technical, like directory, like, oh, I love talking to, I love like just pitching jokes, you know, or like, do you talk about directing at all or not really? I mean, you kind of, you kind of talk about, 
it's different for every meeting, but you kind of talk about, you kind of try and extract from what you've watched the vibe of the folks. Mm -hmm. So like, mm -hmm. you know, one thing I'll tell you. Right. Or the format is, maybe. Yeah. Or the format or like, like the style. Like he, one thing that was very clear because I did Mythic Quest first, he was like, when he asked me on set, he was like, hey man, would you be interested in doing some sunny episodes? Um, and I was like, yeah. Like he was like, it ain't nothing like this. You know, because on Mythic Quest, <laughs> sure. You know, it's like the DP is Mike Berlucci, who shot You Are the Worst and who's mm -hmm. doing uh, uh, And This Flag Means Death. You know what I mean? And so, mm -hmm. like, it's got a very cinematic look. And he was like, Sonny is not this. I, I have and he's to like, didn't they shoot that show on, like, HVX 200, like, for the first few seasons? Or, like, only, like, they had stage stuff. And then, I don't know. I, I remember it was, like, super kind of lo-fi. Our friend was the first AD on it, Ross Novi. Oh yeah, 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 man. It's like it's super like the, the 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 cameras are on like basically like poles that the that the that the operators can just hold. Mm -hmm. And it's basically a three camera multicam of sorts that turns around mm -hmm. and gets the reverse side, you know? Right. Um I wonder if that's so, that reminds me of like happy endings too. I bet they kinda shot that like that too. Or, I mean, I was going to say Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I think it's kind of a similar mm. thing where it's like you've got three cameras, they're operating, maybe you flip the room, maybe. But you probably, ideally, right. you're kind of blocked to, like, not have to. Yeah, so, so you know, like, that one episode of Mythic Quest led to four out of ten episodes of Sunny in season mm -hmm. 14. And then in season 15, I came back and I did two more. Um, Wait, how do they give so, you four out of 10 episodes? Aren't there like editors and actors and producers and all these other people in line to get these episodes? And this is where the, you know, a little bit of opportunity, you know, luck, what is opportunity plus preparation? Like they, they really like, it's a family vibe there. Like that show, there were times that I was home, like I didn't eat lunch there. You know what I mean? Like we would move so quickly that, you know, because with those three cameras, they're kind of getting everything that they want. These guys are r collectively writing every episode. They're like, no, we got it. And, mm -hmm. you know, they kind of need to work with folks who understand that mm -hmm. and can vibe with that. Mm -hmm. And so I think there was a maybe a bit of a, you know, let's see what happens the first time, but it all worked out. Um, and do you, you know, do director's so, cuts on that too? Yeah, you do. You do. That family ended up being six episodes of of Sunny and three episodes of Mythic Quest because in season two I got two more, mm -hmm. and then the third family was or is the Shondaland family. So um, sorry to keep interrupting, but I'm just so, so curious about so many things. Mythic Quest yeah. versus Always Sunny. So in Always Sunny, they it's I'm sure you're working on season like 25, and you're already like they have this way they shoot. The producers are also the writers and also the actors and also the editors and also the showrunners. With Mythic Quest, I mean, I know Rob, it's like Rob's show, and I'm sure he's like kind of in control of a lot of things. But like you said, there's more cinematic look, mm -hmm. a DP that comes from a film background. It's a different network, yeah. right? Like there's kind of, it's a different ball of wax is what you're getting. Right. At. Yeah. yeah. So right. do you approach your job as a director differently? Like on Always Sunny, is it more about creating opportunities for rhythm and and laughs and jokes and performance mm -hmm. and maybe on mythic quest a little bit more like visual storytelling or like 
Like, what's the difference between how you approach your job on those two shows? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, for, for Always Sunny, I'm thinking, how can I block or how can I offer blocking suggestions for the actors that will fall into this three camera setup? And maybe need one special, you know, if it calls for it. Right. right. And, you know. And can you tell for our listeners that don't know what a special is? Can you define uh, Yeah. So, you know, it's like, oh, and then we'll get, you know, this overhead shot looking down at the bar. Or we'll do some kind of special transition off of a beer mug to something out of the ordinary something that's not in their typical coverage basically yeah Yeah. and i guess and i guess the most the simplest way to think of it is like something that is going to be probably a one camera deal (laughs) versus like you know what i mean like versus like um i've got three cameras and every because the moment you you say hey one camera people are like whoa wait, wait, you know, <laughs> why are you wasting time? <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, well, I, and to be fair, it is, you know, like two thirds is less effective, right? That's 60% slower than, well, than everything else. Right. In, right, in a right. certain sense. Right. And if like, you if know that, that shot gets into the edit, then it's exactly as effective as 10 cameras. Cause you're only going to use right. one. I mean, unless sure. it's mortal Kombat or something and you're re- yeah, yeah. replaying the angle seven times. You have to know when you want to like expose yourself for mm-hmm. that because people might be like, what the fuck is this guy doing? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Or they might say, okay, I agree. That makes sense. And, um, you know, we'll give you one because you're, you're, you're so efficient with everything else. Mm-hmm. Do you well, try and find a special in each scene? No, no. I, I, I try and, I try and find, I, tr- I think about, I think blocking is directing in all honesty. Like, I feel like, the shows often will shoot themselves. Like I can try and find specials or other ways to, mm-hmm. you know, be original. But like if the blocking is creative and thoughtful and perhaps unique to my approach to the scene, then it's going to be different from if Matt or if Warren directed it, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. um, and then I guess my little kind of secret is I'll try and, push the envelope on things that are unique to my episode. So like if I, like if I have a montage or like take flight attendant as, a, as an example, like there's this whole like um, uh, flight training scene sequence in the episode. And they were like, look, we're not going to be prescriptive on when you tile, you know, like kind of go into like the different boxes and move things around. Like we're not going to, we don't write it in. We're not going to be prescriptive, but like, you know, if you think there's a place to do it, go for it. And so in that, excuse me, in that sequence, there were like five or six different tiling things that I came up with that I knew I had the, I had the kind of, I don't want to say wiggle room because that's not it, but I had the, I had the support to kind of carve out something unique. Did you have to get it approved by showrunners? Like, do you put together like an animatic or something? That was a very, that's one of the shows. And, and this is kind of, you know, kind of getting to the first question. Like, this is why I really love, you know, streaming shows and premium cable, because a lot of times, depending on the show, they are looking to hire people to interpret the script. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, you know, you're going to be in a position 
to offer up ideas around how you think this can be shot. And they're looking for you to do that. That's exciting to hear, Pete, because I feel like, you know, for so long you hear about network directors who are kind of, you know, uh, there to execute, right? But but maybe not necessarily bring their own vision to the table and that like the vision of the show is kind of already established in the pilot and the showrunners and the writers are guiding that, right? And so you're there to kind of serve that. And that oftentimes part of like maybe the biggest reason that directors don't get asked back if it is if they're not if they don't understand and jive with that vision mm-hmm. right so it's it's interesting because I, I was gonna say like oh part of maybe what clicks for you with each of these families is this ability to both you know sink in and also make it special at the same time without without rocking the boat too hard right I want to point out you said, you know, maybe your secret ingredient, that's the special thing that you bring to the table is knowing when to inject your own creativity and when to kind of just service the story. And I think that's really awesome. That's incredible advice. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to know also because you want to like, you want to be indispensable as a director, mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> but you also, yeah, don't want to be difficult. Yeah. Right. I mean, I will say, too, I feel like, you know, you know, because I write and I produce and I think that along with some folks just kind of being willing to. And this is part of the podcast, uh, like birth too. like I want to talk to people and kind of see where they're coming from and have that temper where I'm coming from. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and I just think like as if I just put a producer hat on. And I'm like thinking about the things that I've been writing for years, you know what I mean? And then, you know, then let's say tomorrow it gets green lit. I'm not shooting a pilot until sometime in 2023. And then, you know, in 2024, when the season is shooting, some director is going to come up and like, tell me how it's going to be shot. (laughs) Like, I'd be like, are you Uh, kidding me? I have a few ideas that I think are really going to spice this sequence up. I don't know. I kind of have this like weird dream where I'm like, have like a show and I make a cool pilot. And then I meet these other directors that come and just totally take it to a new level. Like to Mm -hmm. me that that, there's something exciting about seeing how other directors would interpret something. But, but Mm -hmm. like you're saying, of course, there's tone and there's things that could be wrong. And today I heard this interview with Bill Hader, where mm-hmm. I guess he's directing every single episode of season four of Barry. Wow. And he said that on season three and two, he just, he would have these tone meetings with the directors and he would basically be telling them how he, it should be shot. And he felt like they had their own ideas and he's like, uh, okay. And he kept, <laughs> he kept like letting people do what they wanted because he didn't want to be like a dick but he he had he had it in his brain a different way he knew what he wanted yeah right so at some point everyone's like why don't you just direct the whole season right also if you look at the list of people who directed barry episodes they're the best do you know what i mean (laughs) (laughs) like he's like i don't know hero i saw it a different way you know like like literally (laughs) some of the best directors working (laughs) right yeah (laughs) anyhow um Well, so sorry, you were saying you had your third family, which is the Shondaland family. And so the third family, yes, the Shondaland family. And that was, what was that? Uh, Oh, I left off a mixed dish episode from from the Ish universe. So that's 13 episodes of TV. 
there's six and three, nine with uh, the uh, RCG guys, always sunny folks. And then with Shondaland, I did Station 19, three Grey's Anatomy, and I'm going to do a fourth. And so that's five more. So mm-hmm. like just right. right there, that's like, Five plus thirteen. What's that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Eight, eighteen, and then another nine. Eighteen and nine. That's fucking twenty-seven episodes of TV just with one job hire, with three job hirings, in, mm-hmm. in, in arguably. And so um, that was really helpful for me to kind of get a career going. And then you know, every time you get hired, there are other people who begin to get comfortable with the idea of working with you because someone else has hired you and more importantly, rehired you. Mm-hmm. Um, the worst thing that they say you can find on an IMDb page is a bunch of like single episode uh, mm-hmm. tallies um, because it's like, well, what the fuck was happening, you know? So when when COVID hit and we were all just home and I finally had a time to like not watch things that were guided by a meeting. I was watching a lot of shows and I was like, I like this show. I would reach out to my reps and say, Hey, you know, do, do your rep thing, please. Um, and I've got a great manager, Stephen Marks at Dowden Entertainment, great agent, uh, Brandon Lawrence at CAA. And I'm like, uh, and even my lawyer, Andre DeRoche, like which of the three of you awesome folks can like, Mm-hmm. tap a shoulder and so like I watched you and I was like I fucking thought that shit was great you know what I mean I watched Love Life and I thought that that was great um, and so you know it was I began to get more specific about going for shows that I responded to and I think the likelihood of you responding to something that is already creatively in your wheelhouse is probably pretty high and so then you're showing up and it's like a perfect handshake of like what you want to do meets what the show is looking for you to do. Um, and over the, I guess that was 2020, I started doing more shows that were like, almost like I, I applied to a job that didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would really strongly recommend folks like do that because a lot of times like, you know, people work so long on a show that, and they care so much about a show. It's great to have, have a rep say, Hey, Orin loves your show and would love to direct an episode. And like, they'll be like, okay, let me hear this motherfucker. Tell me why they love my shit. Like who's, everybody's got 10 minutes for that. Right. It's really interesting because you have, so you have this like procedural background from Shondaland. You have this comedy background from like the ish Mm -hmm. world and like Mm -hmm. the Kenya world and the, um, always sunny world but then a show like you which is i haven't seen it but it, it's like a dramatic thriller type show right yeah like it's yeah. kind of high tension action t- suspense like romance so, right yeah, yeah. like it, it, it's kind of and and you know i got episodes that had a lot of action it's kind of like it's kind of like a, a, a mix of everything it's, it's a show that knows what it is mm-hmm. and kind of requires you to understand genre and know when you need to lean on your, you know, romantic comedy, when you need to lean on your, like, I'm about to kill this person, <laughs> you know, uh, skill set. So how did you pitch yourself on that, kind of given that everything you'd done, like your kind of major background was in slightly different areas of TV? 
I think the beautiful thing of the industry is, especially when you talk to the right people, 90%, I hate when people fucking pick a random percentage, but you yeah, know, like 88.6, you can be specific. 88.6% <laughs> of people, you know, are, are not in jobs that they love to be in. So like you could mm-hmm. be meeting with an exec at Apple TV who wishes they were at Netflix. Right. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. like, I, I feel like we can all kind of comfortably be passionate and honest about what you know in a corny way makes our creative heart flutter you know Mm -hmm. what i'm saying and like i think that when people hear that they're like oh okay like because we at a certain point like we're all arguably competent if we're in the room right then it's like well what are you going to bring to this that like are you going to elevate this are you going to be a pleasure to be around and so you know i just really try and find the things that really make me engaged about a show um and speak about how like i have a personal connection to it and really be clear about my interest in having the opportunity to direct on that show i love that so much and it's funny i feel like over the last few months i've kind of lost sight of some of that stuff just to get personal for a, a tiny second like i had to kind of consciously remind myself to like like my job and mm. to like appreciate it and to pay attention to it and and just like engage on kind of a spiritual creative level you know the your point of like what makes your creative heart flutter that's it that's like essential to artists i believe mm. And I think that 88.6% of us kind of lose sight of that sometimes and or maybe shy away from talking about it or engaging with it. Maybe engaging with it is really what I'm trying to talk about. And what I'm hearing from you, Pete, is just like, it's, it's just you showing the evidence of why you're going to make something good and why you care. And showing that to people is inspiring. It's good to be around. And it's the difference between you know, being jaded and not, right? So like, why not live your life? I think it yields more work. And that's a thing that I've ignored for a long time over the last few years. I was, since I started this podcast with Oren, I, I think maybe yeah, there's I've something to do with it. slowly poisoning him <laughs> uh, with uh, subconscious yeah. um, brain suggestions. I think there's also kind of what you're saying earlier, Pete, about like, like obviously you, your career was pretty much on fire, but you went from a place where you had these jobs that were probably pretty easy for you to get work that was easy to get and work that you wanted to do. And when those things weren't aligning perfectly, you pushed for the work you wanted to do. And that's something Matt and I talk about a lot. It's really hard, Mm -hmm. especially when you have kids and, you know, a mortgage and all these things in your life that don't care about your creative satisfaction. It's hard to turn down the easy to get job in order to go fight for the hard to get job, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I think it's, it's spot on and it's like, I don't know, man. I, I feel like most recent position as a producing director on this Hulu show, like it's been really interesting to me being involved with, you know, prepping mm-hmm. other directors, you know, mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. interviewing other people who are going to be on the crew. And I, and you kind of, there are things that I've known you know, whether whether they were like innate or people had shared them with me anecdotally. But like now I'm like, oh, man, like I would much rather have 
this fewer credit person around for 15 hours a day <laughs> sure. than this person, yeah. than this jerk who's got like nominations and wins because that's going to fucking exhaust me. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like, or, or you just kind of like, you really see um, the value of passion and, 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 and also like just doing a good job. I don't know, man. Like it's, it, 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 that part gets overlooked. And, and I, and I say to folks all the time, like, you know, I don't, I don't take a meeting where I can't say at the end of it, I would be honored to have the opportunity to direct your show, you know? And, and I think about like all the other folks that, you know, maybe I'm giving away my shit right now, but like, <laughs> I imagine in the, in the course of like all the director meetings that happen, not everybody's saying that. Mm-hmm. And, and you know what I mean? And so like the person who says that, who maybe has done less air quotes, you know, um, versus like the, the, the person who's done more and it just feels like they're like, whatever, like I'll take it or leave it. I'm just trying to have 13 to 15 episodes on my calendar for the year and, <laughs> you know, go to Ibiza and shit, you know, like I, I think it ends up it, it, with the right people that matters, you know what I mean? And like, mm-hmm. then you end up finding like folks that you, you do want to collaborate and work with. And, and to that point, you know, the, the producing director on you, um, is a wonderful director. Her name is Silvertree. She was the producing director on, um, flight attendant. So she brought me over. I had to interview sure. and I had to do all that, but like, she was like, Oh, you'll, you'll love this guy. Berlanti, they knew me from you. And it was more about, you know, other folks that I had to kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, kind of pitch myself to. And then now I'm going to go to do Fatal Attraction with her in mm-hmm. October. So oh, wow. I guess Does Kaylee have to meet you? Family. Oh yeah, we met. Yeah. And before we you met. get the job, the directing job? Especially because she's a, you know, an EP on the show and like, you know, it's, she's going to want to, she's going to want to know whether or not she's going to be able to vibe with that person. And mm-hmm. um, again, I, I don't know, I'm like beating a dead, dead horse, but um my DP on love life season two had been a DP on flight attendant season one. Mm. And so when I knew that, I told him how much I liked the show and like, I'd love to you know get involved with it. He was like, Oh man, you'd be great for that show. And he texted her. He was texting her, Adrian uh, Penn Correa. He was texting her while I was zooming with her for the job. Oh, wow. That's always, that oh, never wow. hurts. Yeah. <laughs> when the person you're interviewing with is getting you recommended to them from someone they trust while you're interviewing with them. When you're the producing director, that's like a really cool point of view, obviously, to see how other directors work. Um, you were saying that like you'd maybe rather take the more passionate director than the one that has, you know, the Emmy Awards. I'm curious, though, like, w- was there ever a situation where like a young kind of newer director that hadn't hasn't directed a ton of TV came in. They were super passionate, but they were kind of trying to reinvent the show in their point of view. Whereas the veteran director mm-hmm. might be like, okay, yeah. So I noticed you guys start with the wides and then you do a, you know, these zollies whenever this thing happens and we'll just do that. Right. right? We'll add a little spin here, some cool backlighting here and we're done. Like, is, was there any bit of that? Cause I'm assuming for the younger directors, you are kind of like a mentor as well, right? Mm-hmm. At least on your show. Right, right. Well, you know, having having done 
so many episodes of TV and having had a variety of style of producing director, um, when I got the job, I was like, all right, I, what is it that I loved about producing directors and what is it that I hated about producing mm-hmm, directors? Mm-hmm. Um, and can and, you, sorry, just define producing director real quick for our audience? Oh yeah. So, so, you know, on one hand, you've got the showrunner or the, there's a new title, WEP, writer EP, and that person is, um, involved or, 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 uh, their job is to kind of protect and develop the storylines, you know, the season arc and work to make sure that everything that happens day to day is preserving that vision. So, you know, the show can be the show, the producing director, which is mostly unique to one hour dramas. That person is there to help kind of ideally visually interpret what the showrunner's vision for the show is. And then to make sure that these directors that come through that rotate, you know, week to week are well prepped and aware of the vision of the show, the kind of challenges and pitfalls of the show, whether that's like cast crew budget or whatever. Um, and they are just equipped to make the best episode of the show possible. Um, and is that producing director on set with the other directors? Yeah, I think, you know, like I would go to set often, but I want to fall back and be more involved with prep. So mm-hmm. when, and, and, and exciting the crew about the director that's coming next. So when they get to set, it's their deal. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they've right. been hired to direct and, you know, you don't want to be around too often because people are going to be like, hey, Pete, well, what should we do? That's not, <laughs> sure, yeah, you're empowering them. Yeah, but you are yeah. whispering to the yeah. DP 40 instead of 50. I love that so much because I feel like, especially in comedy, you know, showrunners, oftentimes they're writers first and then executives second and or maybe director second or whatever. But like, you know, inevitably everybody has a specialty and then they're kind of uh, learning some of the other aspects on, on the job. Right. And a showrunner right. really is like kind of those three things all at once. You're an executive, you're a writer and you're a director. Right. Or at least typically. So like it, it always seemed like frankly, an impossible amount of work to be great oh, yeah. at all three of them. And also to be, you know, like relatively young and energized and like, you know, like it's a, just a crazy hard job. And I know that everyone's talking a lot about how we have like a real uh, showrunner problem because we have so much television and not enough people who've been trained in the jobs because they've been hiring the same people over and over and over again for the last 30 years. But I, I love the idea of you know, kind of like building different department heads, all of whom still answer to a showrunner, but who have a little bit more insight than say, you know, uh, an episode director, you know, like if you're just coming in for a couple weeks, you just don't have a right. sense of the, the political landscape or the studio, any of that stuff. And so right. having, having a person who understands your job and also the big picture is really awesome and right. also wants you to succeed <laughs> yeah yeah totally Which is important, yeah you're not right? in competition you're not like oh boy you know right <laughs> i think i feel like you were about to drop some chapman gold on us mm. uh, before i asked you to define a producing 
director, you were saying the traits that you saw in other producing directors that you really liked that you uh, wanted to incorporate. Well, yeah. So like, you know, I remember there were a couple shows where like I got, whether it was a document or a deck or, you know, just something that was like, this is the language of the show. This is what we're going for with, you know, this storyline or, you know, framing or pace or whatever. Um, and so I've worked to put together a, you know, like 25 page deck that all the directors got that explained all of that, but also like what their prep time would look like, um, what production would look like, bios on all the people with photos, um, you know, yeah, suggestions, you know what I mean? Like I, awesome. and one thing I actually want to do awesome. for the next season is I want the, the crew list to have photos for all a hundred people. Because when you come in and you're like, you know, man, like, I mean, look, there's people I work with for six months. I don't know their fucking, I don't know their name. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, and and at a certain point, it almost gets weird to ask. You know what I yeah. mean? So like, it's like when you have a four-hour um, conversation with someone on the airplane sitting next to you, and then as you're getting off the plane, you're like, uh, by the way, my name's Oren. <laughs> and they're like, oh, me too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you know, man, just trying to like make it. I don't know, less awkward and enjoyable because at the end of the day, it's a weird damn job to, to mm-hmm. come in and direct an episode of TV. When you are making this deck for the new directors, do you talk about like lensing and technical things, lighting, um, contrast? We had the DP of this Netflix show, End of the Effing World, and he showed us his deck that him and the director created. And it was had all sorts of rules about where they, they place the camera and what lenses they use. And I found it like really fascinating and interesting and a nice insight into why the show feels the way it feels. Right. Right. We didn't get that specific. It was more, you know, with Kerry Washington having directed the pilot, I was using that as a guide for Mm. what the look of the show would be while also being aware of the fact that we would have nine days and not 14. You know what I mean? So it's like some of these things kind of no longer apply because we can't, we can't shoot like that. And so um, it was just trying to find like, look, aesthetically, like this is the goal. This is the feel for like, you know, it's a bit of a love triangle and um, the two men in the, in the triangle with this uh, one woman who's our lead character played by Amiyatsi Cornaldi. Um, once certain things happen narratively, there's a shift in how they are shot. And so like, that was an important thing to relay, you know, this idea of like, you know, her home is a little bit messy because she's got no time for maintaining it because of work. So like, if you can stage a kitchen scene with dishes in the sink, like that's a good thing, you know, just kind of, Mm helping helping fill out the world exactly exactly imagine like you get a directing job and they're like by the way these are some things that you can do to make the scene really Mm -hmm. like you build out the universe how cool is that i can ask you a hyper specific question (laughs) real quick then i won't ask any more questions matt then you can have all the rest of the questions (laughs) do you use the techno crane a lot and the stuff you direct um when i can get it yeah 
when I can get it. It's, you know, a lot of shows uh, when you, when you get there and prep, they're like, we have one three camera day, you know, mm-hmm. you can, you, you can't get a crane, but you can get a jib, you know, like, you know, cause it's all budgeted and they have a pattern budget that they're trying to honor every episode. Um, but where I can most certainly I used in the flight attendant, I, I used it in a couple sequences. One got cut at, in, as a kind of establishing shot in, out in front of this liquor store um, when Cassie kind of takes her first drink in the present day um, and hops off the wagon. Um, but then we had this whole uh, synchronized swimming sequence and the camera just needed to be able to look straight down to kind of get that Bugsby Berkeley perspective. Um, so we had a huge crane, um, in that, in that scenario, but, you know, that's one of those things that it's a, it's a cost because you, once you have the crane, you have the operator that you need the remote head that you need the person who can put that together and, Mm -hmm, you know, and you need the time, you need the time. Yeah. But I, you know, but there's such a, I think sometimes, um, sometimes that budgetary, um, vigilance can have impacts that are unexpected. Like, like, you know, you could, you could not have, let's say, a, a you don't even need a techno crane. It could, it could be, um, I'm thinking of a piece of equipment and I can't think of the, of the name right now, but just like a short arm kind of crane. I, and I can't think of mm-hmm. the name of this thing, but like, you know, I can think of times where I, if I would have had that, I could have moved quicker, but I sure. didn't. And so now I had to make equipment do shit that it doesn't do. Mm-hmm. And now we're in, you know, minute 95 of something that I could have gotten in 40 minutes, you know, and you have to weigh the costs of like, well, now you're, you, you called grace. I'm getting in the weeds, but you know, you right. call grace and now you've got overtime. It's like, well, was that better than not written the shit? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, yeah, that's the reason I ask is because, I mean, you know, obviously, like when you do Blackish and when you do these shows, it's always sunny and they kind of have their very efficient way of shooting. It's one thing. But when you're doing The Flight Attendant, which is second season, I don't know, Matt, how much of the second season you saw, but like the camera work is like at another level from the first season. You know, it's like yeah. very visually mm-hmm. dynamic and like don't know what's real and what's not real. And there's like a lot of like, Obviously, the first season, you're going in and out of her, like, psyche and her, you know, brain. But in the second season, I feel like you guys amp that up even more. And then a show like you, which I haven't seen, but I imagine there's, like, probably more cinematic kind of camera movements and stuff. Yeah. Um, and But whenever I, I've had the techno crane just, like, a handful of times, and I'm always, like, like, ooh, what shot? Like, now I'm changing the entire shot list knowing that I have this crane. And, sure. And we push through this window, and we do this, and we do this tilt, and... And now I'm like thinking of all these moves that aren't even necessary for the scene just because I right. can do them and I get this like crane anxiety. And then I end right. up just getting like one yeah, shot that we could have done <laughs> with the dolly <laughs> booming up or something, you know, and how you how you control that. I'm curious. I do have this like, um, you know, you know, like when you end up like for a lot of a lot of dudes, right? Like we buy Jordans and it's usually the Jordans we couldn't afford when we were growing up. Sure. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you, so you like your 30s buying the stuff you wish you could have bought in your 20s. Exactly. It's like it's like I'm doing this for fourth grade. Right. And like, <laughs> you know, and so like I'll often I'll be like, I want a high and wide. 
mm-hmm. you know, like sure. why? Yeah. Because in all the indie things I ever made, I could never put the camera higher than eye level. You're speaking my language, buddy. <laughs> That's how I feel at, literally to this day. Anytime the camera booms, it could be a two Ooh. inch boom. Like the, the difference between right. a doorway dolly and a dainty dolly it physically makes me feel better. A very simple, teeny tiny upgrade. It's all standard kit now. But like for right. the longest time when you come up indie, right? And you're like yeah. hauling gear yourself or whatever. The difference between renting a truck and like, you know, your friend's pickup is, you know, yeah. you can't get a Dana or a Fisher on one of those, uh, on a consumer car, basically. Yeah. Um, you know the Dana Dolly. You know what the Dana Dolly is, right? Oh, 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 oh my God, I've been saying the Dana Dolly. Sorry, I've been saying Fisher. uh, I meant Fisher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The hydraulic boom is what I'm talking about. Thank you, Warren. Uh, We all have the Dana Dolly. The the skateboard. The the skateboard wheels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which the Uh, Dana Dolly is not. My DP, I'm always... I love a Dana Dolly. I'm always like, yeah, let's bring the Dolly Hero to this. And he's always setting up the Dana Dolly. I'm like, we have the Fisher. Why are we using the Dana? He's like, it's just easier. I'm like, no. What if I want to go up one inch? I'm going to turn all these apple boxes sideways. <laughs> anyway. You know, I always feel like in every episode, I'm like, when, when will I go high? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and it's, and it's kind of, the, it's kind of what you're talking about. Like the other side of it too, is like, I remember I've done plenty of things, but I, I did this one shot. Actually it was a mythic quest. And like, it's like this Camaro barreling toward camera, pulling mm-hmm. into a parking lot. Then it, it makes a, it kind of whips to the right to go, to pull it to park. And the mm-hmm. camera is on the, on the techno crane moving with it. And it fucking moves right inside the window into a profile shot of Rob. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the amount of like turning of wheels that was happening mm-hmm. with the, with the, with the operator, I was like, you're killing it. Yeah. Oh you know? man. When, <laughs> when you know your crew is just like doing something highly technical, the joy right. you get. Oh man. And did it yeah. make it into the cut? But it got cut. It, it got cut up. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, That's the bummer. You know, yeah. <laughs> and so you, then you kind of learn like, well, if I can so then then you learn, well, if I can if I can tether dialogue to this, mm-hmm. I got a better shot of of preserving it. So then you start like, you know, finding these little tricks to to keep it. But I always repeat this, but payment bends he was always he would always complain about having his blocking get really getting stale basically you'd have people come yeah. in they'd sit down they say their lines and they'd leave and that'd be the scene so we would ask what's the one piece of dialogue we cannot cut from this scene and he would uh-huh. have the character move on that line so uh-huh. that he knew like okay we can have someone come in say say the first half of the scene walk somewhere else and then have the second half of the scene and know he's going to be okay. No one's going to be mad at him. Right. Yeah. Kabir, do you know Kabir Akhtar? Uh-huh. I know who he is. Yeah. He was an editor first, you know, he edited in crazy ex-girlfriend, a bunch of stuff. He mainly a director now, but he was telling us kind of all the tricks of like what shots you can cut and can't cut in TV and how to save performances and, and do different things. But I always, I guess that payment Ben's trick, all these, these various things are, it's interesting that as directors, we have to think about how to get the stuff we love to remain in, in the cut by the end of the, you know, by the final cut. It's not something you learn in indie film or short films mm-hmm. or anything when you're in control because you build the whole scene around that shot. But when someone else is in control, you're just praying that your, your stuff 
makes it in there. I love to watch the cut that airs because then I can really get a sense of like, if I go back, what can I, what, are, uh-huh. what's welcome, you know, sure. like, like, um, like for instance, um, you know, on, on one hand, there'll be things that I've done. I'll be like, yeah, I think that, I think that might work. And I'm like, Oh, you cut that whole shit. Okay, great. <laughs> Noted, you know? And then I think of times where, you know, I always want to make sure the DNA of the show was preserved. But um, in this episode of Love Life that I did, um, the second episode of season two, on the very last take of the final shot, I'm doing this like slow push in to William Jackson Harper after like a night from hell um, mm-hmm. with like this NYU student and this woman that he's kind of dating post divorce and all this stuff. And I was like, hey, man, just on this one, just kind of I'm like after action, count the three and then look into the lens and just hold it. And I was like, I don't even think anybody knew I did it, mm-hmm. you know, because it's not the language of the show. And it did it. And I was like, yeah, that's that's dope. And I put it in the mm-hmm. cut and then I watched it and they used it. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, I literally was not There's nothing about that show in in what? 18 or 20 episodes that breaks the fourth wall, but they kept it. So it's like, it's kind of like a reminder, like give them what they need, go for what you want. And you know, your, your cut is like defending your thesis Mm -hmm. and you know, it's gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna get approved either way. You're gonna graduate, you know, (laughs) but like maybe they'll keep what you think elevates it. I love the idea. They're like, well, we had to get, we, we cut the finale because um, Peach has really whiffed it. So sorry. Yeah. we're one episode short this year, everyone. <laughs> um, yeah. Sorry to mention Bill Hader again, but he was talking about the season finale of Barry season two and how they use these like crossfades from scene to scene. Mm. And the interviewer was asking him what, what the intention was behind that. He's like, Oh, you know, it like we were. It just felt a little too episodic the way we had it with these straight cuts. So we just tried crossfades, even though we've <laughs> never done them before in the show, and it just just worked. So right. we just did it. And like sometimes, you know, I, like what's frustrating to me as a director, especially in the commercial world, is like a lot of times you get to see one edit and then you email notes or leave them on Frame IO or something, and you're not right. sitting with the editor, and then they kind of implement them some of them exactly the way you said, but some of them totally wrong. And a lot of times the ones that they implemented exactly the way you said, like aren't working. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's a medium where you just don't know if something works until you see it, you know? Right. And yeah, so you want to maybe, try it out, but you yeah. can't say like, Oh, undo that. So if the language of the show is that nobody ever looks into the lens, but all of a sudden they're looking at the lens. Yeah. Of course they would reject that because that just doesn't make any sense. But Hey, once you did it, all of a sudden, hey, that actually is pretty cool, you know? Yeah. yeah. Like, well, so. and I think it speaks to also, you know, we've been talking so much about the part of the job of the director being like servicing the vision of the show. But if the tone and the world is consistent and ironclad, then it kind of actually facilitates those opportunities to kind of push at the walls and bend things a little bit, right? You know, we're kind of trained to not do that sometimes. And so 
I love the idea of like, you know, knowing in your director's cut, you're trying things out. You have the audacity or the the confidence, I should say, to like, be like, hey, this is what I think is good. Don't worry. We have we have it the way you were expecting, but give this right. a shot. You know, right. let this sink in for a second. Whereas like I, I could imagine if it were me in the editing room being like, ah, that's really cool, but they'll never go for it. Put the other take in, you know, mm. and then you don't even give them the shot to to make their own mind up, you know. I, I mean, yeah. this is an evolution, though, too, because I will say, you know, early on, you know, in the first bunches of episodes, I would probably play it more safe. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you get to the point where you're like, OK, they know me. They know I get the show. Mm-hmm. So now, like, I'm going to push the envelope a little bit and they'll be like, OK, we see that. But no. Versus like, what's he doing? You know, <laughs> as, a, as a knee jerk reaction. Um, but now I almost feel like what you're saying. I feel like it's, it's, I take it as my responsibility to present something unexpected. Exactly. Like a vision of this that's in line with what you do, but like, that's the whole thing about collaboration, right? Like if you hired correctly, which is their job, not mine, right? <laughs> like if they've hired correctly, then they've got a whole bunch of people who are offering wardrobe that they hadn't necessarily thought, you know, takes as an actor that they hadn't necessarily predicted, you know, and and a and a and a and an idea around the scene that perhaps they hadn't envisioned, but it's all driven by what they did right. And what they and what they did right, you know, butterflies out to have different responses from different people, and you know, it's great when people recognize that that's what a script is actually doing. Yeah, inspiring other experts to kind of manifest their own create creativity. I love that. Right. When you show people, when you do something like that in the edit, that's a little unexpected. Do you set them up like, hey, I did this thing, and you know? In the this mm-hmm. right before the end of the second act or whatever that you know is kind of I think is super exciting. I don't know how you guys will feel about it, but I think it, it's cool. Or do you just let them see it sight unseen or with no no yeah. notes? These are, I gotta say, man, you guys have great questions. Um, I just stuff we want to know. <laughs> I used to write like a fucking email and be yeah. like and and share it with like you know the the writer, the showrunner, whoever needed to be. I thought needed to be the recipient of it. And then I was like, whatever, you know, why they'll watch it, you know, like, like, or, or, cause look, I've heard that at some places, like they don't even watch the cuts. Now I, I think that's rare. And I think that's a certain kind of show, but like, I was just like, you know what, they'll watch it. If they don't like it, it's there at the end of the timeline, all the scenes are there. I like, they're just not in the chronology of it, but like, if you wanted to pull up, 42 and 38 that I omitted or, or carved out lines, you can get it. It's all there for you. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I kind of let them experience it. Um, I, I, you know, one thing that's actually even more freeing these days is, and I don't know if this is the right thing to do or not, but as I direct episodes that are bigger episodes and are kind of manufactured to be far beyond running time, Mm-hmm. I've now been like, well, I'm not going to give you a 65 minute cut. Like, I just mm-hmm. can't. I just feel like 
I've done nothing. I've done no service to you at that point, right? Because mm-hmm. the editor's cut was sixty eight, <laughs> so right. like you know, I might then be like, okay, I'm gonna fucking go for it. I'm gonna rearrange things. I'm gonna like cut lines and carve things out, and um, I'm gonna stand on that because I feel like I. What am I doing if I'm just giving you? something where you've got to do everything. Like somebody's got to give you a perspective here. I mean, the editor's cut is that cut. If they're like, hey, we want to see literally everything we wrote, they've got it assembled and pretty and ready to go. But like he, I'm going to take a swing at what I think the episode really should be. And if that means some restructuring or rewriting or whatever, you get to check that out. And and I'm curious how regularly, what's your batting average? Do you feel like with those big changes, do they keep most of them? Do they ignore most of them? I feel it's pretty good. I mean, every now and then I'll do something like, I'm cutting that. You know? <laughs> and, and, and then I'll, and I'll look at like the network cut and I'll be like, oh, okay, I'll put that shit right back in. But then I still say, okay, well, why did they do that? And, and it's like, oh, well, their perhaps take on what the audience is going to need. Um, maybe we have two different ideas on that. You know, um, I'm a less is more person. You know, I'm a, like, I'm like, if I find any whiff of redundancy, I'm like, cut that, cut that, cut that. You know, um, I think there's a, there's a um, great TED talk by Andrew Stanton, where he's like, you know, audiences, want two plus two they don't want four you know what i mean and mm-hmm. and anytime like i can kind of see the math is not mathing i'm i'm just kind of like well let's lose that like what what's the value of that if it's just like filler a deluge mm-hmm. yeah it's, you know what i mean but i don't know what they say i don't know if they're like this fucking guy you know like <laughs> well you keep getting asked back so I imagine not so bad. My last thing, I'm curious, you know, you said obviously the director's one of the main jobs is blocking in TV, but you're also, you know, working on performances. Like, you know, you gave us the example of like looking right into the lens, but I'm assuming with some of the day players, people that are just on this episode, you're probably much more involved in their performance. Can you tell us a little bit about like kind of some of your your strategies or approaches of like making sure you're getting performances that are funny or dramatic or in tone what's your prep involved in terms of like performances like do you write verbs on your script do you have ideas for alt jokes or business or or what is it i try and when i read the script like i i first do a read as you know a person you know what i mean like and then after that i kind of go and, and and read it from different department heads points of view and then Somewhere after reading it as a as a DP, a production designer, a, you know, costume, or I look at it from the actor's point of view, and I try and have like you know, look I'm, right now I'm I'm really talking like ideal scenarios where like I get the script with enough time to do all this shit, mm-hmm. you know, but like um, I'll try and give each seen a title that I've decided, you know what I mean? Like, so like, mm-hmm. you know, this is the scene, you know, this is mass sure. redemption. This a is shorthand. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, yeah. yeah. Um, Still waiting and, for that. 
and then I'll uh, <laughs> and then I'll go and then I'll break it down the beats of it. Um, <laughs> one thing that is um, what so I so I try and be prepared to kind of you know support and or guide the series regulars or guest stars, you know, with mm-hmm. ideas, right? Um, one thing that is, I think Paris Barclay had said this in an orientation that I took. He's the former head of the DGA, super accomplished director, like awesome guy. Um, he talked about how, you know, you can use the guest star to direct or, or push the regulars on the show. Mm, because a lot of times you know you might and this is like a generalization but you might find or you could find that you know number one or two or five to eight are kind of like this what i do been doing Mm -hmm. it 89 times like appreciate the enthusiasms (laughs) but you know (laughs) cool thank you and then you've got this guest star and you're like, you know, Hey, let's go for this. And they start, you know, mining moments and doing things. And I've done that. And I've watched, you know, that regular look up and be like, Oh shit. Oh, okay. Okay. Like, Oh, we're, are we acting again? Okay. You know? And so like, that's like a really good tool to get things out of a scene that you probably couldn't by asking someone who's been there um, and you have to be a little more deferential to perhaps. Um, And then, you know, just really kind of being ready to your question with like, you know, I have this thing called the actors um, thesaurus and you can look through it and kind of get a variety of different words, you know, Mm -hmm. or synonyms for like a word. So you can kind of, you know, don't accuse, but Mm-hmm. provoke you know what right, I mean or whatever right. and and you have all that ready because you know sometimes um one example I can think of is like I remember doing an episode of Grey's Anatomy and this woman's you know son had like a leg amputation and he had kind of hid it from her it was like a sports injury or whatever and it's like this big scene and yes it's dramatic but no, it's not fully dramatic because <laughs> the show is not going to do it like that. And I, I recall kind of watching when I was like giving this note to kind of, and it, and it's tough too, because you never want to talk about what, what you need for the audience, but sometimes it is an audience. It's a tonally driven mm-hmm. note. You know what I mean? And so, sure. Um, I remember kind of watching the preparation disintegrate <laughs> because it was like she had prepared to do it in a particular way. And now it was like, no, it's actually not like that. It's kind of like this like 160 degree pivot to something different. Mm-hmm. And it's like I could kind of see like the detachment happening. And it was like, look, it's the same thing emotionally. It's just like, let's get to the place where we, you know, find this kind of um, emotional challenge with what's happening for her. Um, Mm -hmm. So I feel like I'm babbling, but you're just trying to find. No, no, this is really interesting. It's great because I think, you know, it's a thing that we talk about on the show all the time. Like what happens when 
a performance kind of goes off the rails or maybe, you know, I think you're kind of describing a situation where someone has performed it or, or kind of it's, it's become rote for them. And that's like not exactly into their brain and not what you need. And that's when the, the real tools of acting, I think, come into play and, you know, a good actor or a great actor can adjust, can play it any which way you want because you're there to kind of facilitate that with your list of verbs or whatever. But like an inexperienced actor doesn't necessarily have the tools to pivot yet. Right. And it kind of sounds like maybe part of what you're describing also is like that instinct from an actor to show how upset they are when like most of the time people are trying to hide how upset they are. Right. But you, you hear drama, you hear Grey's Anatomy and you're like, my son's leg will never be back. <laughs> right. It's you like know. Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and that's like, yeah. as a director, that's, it's, it's what do you it's do? Scary, yeah. Right. I've yeah. been in that situation where I'm like, like, I know if I can like, take this person aside and we can like, mm. have a drink mm. and like have 20 minutes right. and calm mm. down and rethink about this and talk mm. about the characters. Maybe we can get there. But like, I have four seconds, you know, at worst yeah. 30 minutes behind what's the, the producing director. Thing? Pete just came to set. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's whispering okay. to somebody. He's already told the DP to change the lens. <laughs> you know what, you know what I, I've kind of found as like, and it's such a weird job as we all know, but like, I have found the challenge of the job is that, you know, it's like you're called the director, right? So like we kind of have, some of us at least have kind of come up with a particular idea or assumption of what that means, right? Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. you've got all the ideas, you're guiding this thing. Mm -hmm. But in recent years, I, I do more question asking than anything. You know what I mean? Like I'll say, well, okay, well, like, well, why, why are you kind of approaching it like this? Blah, 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 blah. Okay. In that response, I may get what I need to direct. You know, right. oh, well, I'm right. thinking this, oh, well, what if we were to approach it like this and for these reasons? And now it's like, it's an exchange versus like, you know, some dictatorial, you know, sure. edict by Do fiat. it this way. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, totally. That's exactly. that. It's a Socratic method, right? It's when you mm. get results by asking questions. And, it, and um, you just wouldn't think that it's the way to do it. And, and a lot of times it, you feel like, um, for people who don't do this, you, you might think that you're giving up power. What you're really doing is gaining it because you're showing that you're collaborative and you're also not saying any stupid shit. Because mm -hmm. like if you were to just come over with a note, you know, mm -hmm. If you let them reveal what the thing is first, you can say something more valuable. The more experienced I get, the less you worry about who thinks you're good at your job or who, who thinks you're in control. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, because it is ultimately always about results and your methodology. And like, yeah, I think that most people think that a director comes in and just kind of barks orders yeah. and then makes everyone better somehow by doing that. But like anyone who's done the job for half a second knows that that's the dumbest approach possible, basically. Right. <laughs> or at least I, I it sounds like it. not our style, I guess. Is what I, I mean. love asking a basic question. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. I, like I'm, I'm bidding what time for, is it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm bidding for a commercial now. And, and the producer was like, we were talking about, 
casting and she's like sending me this thing and it's like says OCP, OCP. Uh, you know, we have these two celebs and we have two OCP. And so I Google OCP, you know, like, okay, on camera performer. And I'm like, all right, like, what does this mean to me? Like, why, what are you, look, why, why are you why telling me care? this? Yeah. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, and I was like, three years ago, I'd have probably fronted, like I knew what, mm-hmm. I, I'd have tried to extract what she was telling me mm-hmm. yeah you're just like, like look, yo, dreaming of context clues. i was hoping you would have been like yeah oregon catholic press ocp <laughs> super familiar which is why it comes up if you google it <laughs> yeah advertising uh, especially is like filled with weird acronyms oh yeah that they're are, always like, like the, so hard to to google too what yeah. what do they call oh olvs you know that's oh, like what a, is that? yeah i don't know what that online is online video it's basically a commercial that's going to run on like Instagram or YouTube or whatever. Uh, yeah. The OLVs or the linear, right? Is like mm-hmm. the sure the linear broadcast. versus digital is what I would call it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, my move that I feel like works in everything in life is just like giving other people credit for my ideas. You know, mm-hmm. like oh, you know, like I'll be like, yeah, why? Like, what would you do if you were in this situation? You know, where like you don't know if you you can get to that knife first or or you know run out the door like do you think you would look there and then whatever they say i'll be like you know yeah what you're saying makes me think like you would maybe go for the knife you know like right <laughs> um, right i think pete is saying listen to people and Oren, you were saying this is how i incept people to do the thing with that my preconceived no, idea i think we're both saying <laughs> pretend to listen to people <laughs> i don't think pete is saying that i don't want to put words into anybody's mouth <laughs> make them feel like you're we both agree that they should feel like you're listening yeah definitely yeah. they should you should be looking them in their eyes but they don't they don't know what you're thinking yeah that's the point i i, I have really kind of in i'm trying to make a more concerted effort to be genuine and be straightforward with people about that. And also like, you know, show enthusiasm and positivity and not be competitive with people. I think that like, there's a lot of like, especially in the advertising world, a lot of people kind of vying to take credit for ideas or jokes or, or, or be the top dog or any of that stuff. And it's all fine. It's fine. Sure. Whatever. But like, I'm going to show my enthusiasm for your idea. I'm going to stand up for my own ideas. We're all in this together. And I think that like the more you can kind of in a really overt and explicit way, show people that you are down to collaborate with them openly and honestly, I think it serves you well. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite things on commercial shoots is when the client pitches a joke on set that's funny. That's actually good. Oh my God. Yeah. It's great. And I'm like, oh. Ooh, that is good. Let's do it. And it's like, it makes me so happy because you know, nine out of 10 times the joke is just like offensive or like unusable or something. And you're like, okay, uh, yeah, this guy wants you to say this word. And then you realize their mics on and everyone heard you saying that. Um, but, uh, but when, when you really can collaborate and every, I think people are building on top of each other, it's, I love giving credit to other people. I'll I'll tell a tiny little story along those lines and then then we can wrap it up. Um, But uh, one of the lead investors in my wife's film um, threw a couple jokes and he had a few notes and he threw a joke in there that made it into the final cut. And he's like an investment guy and like a professor and like a, a huge fan of movies, but like 
not in the entertainment world. And this is kind of his way to kind of participate. And so anyway, he flew out to a festival with us. We were sitting next to him and I'd forgotten that he'd written this line. And the screening's going really well. And then I hear his joke land. And I swear to God, I could feel the positive energy glow off of him. That rush of like, oh, my joke just landed. Which uh-huh. is probably literally the first time he's had a joke on screen react to an audience, bouncing off an audience. It, if you could bottle that, oh man, it was just like electric. And I think about it all the time. And so like giving that to people, facilitating that, like yeah, whether they've done it a million times, not hoarding it, give it out, man. That's, it is the best. Yeah, um, that's so, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that guy's name is Conan O'Brien. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Obviously, IMDb is like where we can see what you are just finishing up. Oh, I just refreshed, and you finished another episode of a show. <laughs> <laughs> while, while we were talking, and you have your podcast. Let's shoot with Pete Chapman. You have some pretty pretty good guests. Your first guest was Issa Rae, I believe. Your most recent guest, at least according to IMDb, is Kaylee Cuoco. So not bad. Not bad. You've even and had Pete Chapman on the psychology and techniques of directing, but we've had Pete Chapman on twice. So I think we're one step ahead of you. There you go. There you go. And part of my deal with every show is I, I need someone from the show to come do it up, do a podcast episode. So people can listen to that wherever podcasts are found, wherever they are, wherever their devices have service. Yeah. Nah, this is awesome guys. Uh, you guys are, are, are killing it. Great hosts. You know, I love the, the banter and the back and forth and great. As I said, man, great questions. No bullshit. Like it's great talking to you because I know we all do the same job and we all have the same passion for it. So yes, now we all have the same children at home. Yeah. Has, that, has that changed things at all in terms of like what jobs you take? It has, man. I've been like, uh, you shooting in LA? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, First question. yeah. There's got to be a real reason for me to hop on a plane, you know, whether it's uh, the people I'll collaborate with or the idea or genre or, you know, whatever. I used to try and. You know, I guess they call it fill out my dance card, you know, and mm-hmm. have every possible date checked. But now I've been kind of a little more selective and, and also focusing more on pilots and, and producing things and, mm-hmm. you know, trying to trying to have more of a hand in, in the things that I want to see on screen getting out there. Well, cool. Um, Pete, do you have a minute to hang out with us for our unpaid endorsement segment? Yeah, let's do it. Unpaid endorsements. Well, so my endorsement, I'm rewatching Barry because I, yeah. I had been so long since the first two seasons came out. I was like, oh, I love this show. I've been still kind of craving comfort food. So like I just rewatched the first two seasons. We haven't started the third yet. Let's but just say season one is much more comforting than season three. <laughs> season two, I don't know. It's pretty dark. But so season two, episode five, if you guys mm. remember, is the is the episode where Barry is sent to kill the, the Taekwondo expert whose daughter mm, is yes. also in martial arts. And it is. And she's like a uh, weird creature. She she's like superhuman. She's like they're doing all sorts of wire work. She's like climbing up trees. She she's like Wolverine X-23. Yeah. yeah from Logan. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, 
such a delight. I, it might be my favorite episode of television ever. So that that's my, that's my endorsement. It's pretty high up there at the very least. As uh, specifically, season two, episode five of Barry um, is great. What about you, Pete? Anything cool? So I'll, I'll stay in line with that. My unpaid endorsement would be Atlanta season three. Just wrap that up the other night with a baby. You, you got to get it in when you can. And the half hours, and this is where half hours are really great, like you're saying, because you can kind of like, you know, plow through them much quicker than an hour. And that's obvious math. But mm-hmm. um, I just thought that it was, it was amazing to watch something where I just felt like the creator was doing exactly what they wanted to do. It's creative. It's funny. It's artful. It's you get it or you don't. And it's kind of a North star for the shit that I would personally like to do. So it was very rewarding and refreshing to watch. Um, I guess I'm just going to have to, you know, act and get a job on like a really huge NBC show and then do mm-hmm. music so mm-hmm. I can be in a position to, to do this. But Pete, I think it's helpful if you maybe like write on like a famous sitcom, like straight out of college too. I think like that's, <laughs> yeah. if you start there. Or if your sketch group and has then, a feature at Sundance. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, before you graduate film school. Start at like 19 or yeah. 20 and just be incredibly talented in multiple disciplines. Well, you did have yeah. a feature at Sundance. I had, a, that- I had a short. I had a short. So I'm, oh, short. I'm, I need to rethink these things, but you guys have a <laughs> The recipe is there. I just, yeah, I just sure. have to rewind time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the easy part. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's called. Uh, they they make spanks for men. Are you familiar with these? They wear them over your stomach. They pull your gut in, and then you're like 15 years younger. Or in what you got, buddy? <laughs> I got a new computer, a Mac Studio. Uh, I'm pretty sure I've covered some of this stuff. That that 27 inch iMac has been discontinued. It's one of the biggest uh, tragedies of our time yeah. uh, i'm not not i'm kidding there's bigger tragedies uh but for me it was a pretty big blow because i've been waiting five years to upgrade my uh 2017 imac and now they're they're not making them anymore and the imac is like a perfect computer it's got this um, incredible screen one of the nicest screens we've ever seen the 5k retina you know fast computer it's like a, beautiful keyboard and mouse and everything just works and just need you know a new computer to do 4k video and all that stuff VFX. And so I am selling my old iMac because Apple, they're jerks. They won't even let you use this beautiful computer as a monitor for any different computer. And so I've been researching where I can get the most money for my iMac because Apple, it's a fully loaded 2017, 27 inch iMac, like biggest hard drive you could get, biggest, you know, processor, graphics, memory, everything that you could get. Apple offered me $385 for it. Um, B&H Photo offered me $455 for it. And then I found three other sites. I got Offer.com, CashForYourMac.com, and It'sWorthMore.com. And they all offered me around $930 for it. And then Facebook Marketplace, I believe I can get between eleven dollars and $1,200 for it. So just to give you a range, if you're like upgrading, you know, I talk a lot about like why I love upgrading computers and why I think investing in your career, especially if you're editing or doing posts or doing that, like it's worth it getting a MacBook Pro that like, I'm a big proponent of getting the biggest hard drive you can get because like if you're on a project and you're like running out of hard drive space to put images or videos on, like 
how embarrassing is it? You're like working on very important time critical things and you're now on a hard drive space and you're deleting photos of your kid or whatever. It's just depressing. <laughs> so one of the ways that I find it much easier to upgrade computers is to sell my old ones. And if you are, you know, don't feel like you don't have enough money to upgrade, like you might be surprised by how much money you can get for your current one. So, so yeah, so I got offered cash for your Mac and it's worth more.com. I don't have any, I don't care about them at all. They're just the ones that offered me the most money for my computer. And if you're looking to upgrade, it's worth checking them out unless you want to do the work of like the Craigslist or the Facebook marketplace and meet the person and package and negotiate and do all that crap. Otherwise, these other places will usually just send you a box postage prepaid, put your computer in there, put them in the mail and you're done. They give you the, the money. So anyhow, that's my endorsement is uh, sell your old computer and your iPhone too. You can use all that money to upgrade faster. Pete, this was wonderful. If you have questions for Pete or ourselves, you can email us at justshootitpod at gmail.com. You can tweet at us across all social media at justshootitpod. And you can follow me at Mr. Matt Enlow. And I'm on Twitter. I'm at SmiteyPileg. On Instagram, I'm at OKaplan. This episode was edited by Noah Bayshore. And the music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And rate us on iTunes if you get a chance. We always love seeing those. And we will catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. What's up, people? This is Pete Chapman. Follow me on Instagram and on Twitter via at Pete Chapman. Follow the pod on Facebook on our Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman official page and hit up our mailbag with questions, suggestions, or hey, donations if you're feeling like it via Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman at gmail.com. And just in case you need to know how to spell it, that's Pete with the last name C-H-A-T-M-O-N. All right, y'all, that was episode 39 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. Uh, again, thank you to Matt Enlow and Oren Kaplan for uh, letting me share this episode with y'all. And uh, in the meantime, of course, stay safe, spread love, and keep creating.